Hello and welcome to the January 2012 edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. Happy New Year to our listeners. Um, Happy New Year to you, Art Leonard. Thank you. Do you have any um, New Year's resolutions you want to share with our listeners? Uh, One New Year's resolution is to make sure that the new, improved edition of Lesbian and Gay Law Notes gets the widest possible circulation. You are uh, potentially overpromising because who knows what could happen with our new and improved edition. But art is signaling that we're, we're retooling law notes. So hopefully for this month when it comes out, it'll be new and improved. Um, for those of us who don't, those who don't know, I'm Brad Snyder, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. And with me is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of Lesbian and Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly summary of all the legal, latest legal developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. With that, let's get started um, talking about the lead story in the January issue of Law Notes. Uh, actually, first, take a step back. I want to acknowledge our international listeners, which is, as I, I think I mentioned, we now have listeners in Saudi Arabia, Singapore, Australia, the UK, and Indonesia. So I was wondering, that's, that's something to be proud of. Yes, that's, uh, we, we will have an international influence here. <laughs> uh, but we can't claim to be as comprehensive on international stories as we are on U.S. stories. That, that's fair. That's fair. Um, so you lead with the latest installment of the former Congressman Anthony Weiner scandal, uh, this time concerning text messages that Mr. Weiner sent um, propositioning for a threesome, this time with a man and a woman. I was wondering why you think that story is so important. Are we reading the same issue of, <laughs> of Law Notes? Because I don't recall writing anything about Congressman Weiner in this issue, oh, uh, well. having decided that it wasn't an LGBT issue. All right, fine. Let's get to the real first story. So the, the first story comes to us out of the 11th Circuit, uh, and it concerns the termination of a transgender employee for reasons having everything to do with her gender nonconformity. This case is Glenn v. Brumby. And in it, the plaintiff, Vandiver Elizabeth Glenn, who was born a biological male, intended to transition from male to female during her tenure as an editor at Georgia Assembly's Office of Legislative Counsel. The head of the OLC, however, Sewell Brumby, terminated Glenn because, and these are Brumby's own words, quote, the intended gender transition was inappropriate, that it would be disruptive, that some people would view it as a moral issue, and that it would make Glenn's coworkers uncomfortable. Art, what do you make of the reasons offered by Brumby for the termination? Um, I mean, isn't it usually the case that supervisors are a little bit more nuanced in the reasons they give for terminating an employee? Yes, I think that uh, in this case, Mr. Brumby assumed that what he was doing was perfectly legal because, of course, in the state of Georgia, there is no state law banning discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity. And in fact, before this decision was issued, there was no felon federal appellate ruling under the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution uh, on uh, gender identity as a basis of discrimination in the workplace, a government workplace. So uh, he probably thought he was on pretty safe ground. Either that or he was totally ignorant about the issue. Well, I I guess from a litigation standpoint, I mean, is that – I guess obviously the counsel can't encourage him to create a reason, but um, might counsel have encouraged him to maybe think as many possible bases for the termination beyond this? I'm I'm sure that there is a lot of after-the-fact attempt to come up with a a justification – for doing what they were doing. Uh, he assumed that he had the right to do it for any reason he wanted, including his own personal discomfort with the situation. Uh, and uh, in, in this particular case, I think we're dealing with a, an appellate ruling of such momentous significance uh, for transgender rights in the United States 
that I wouldn't be surprised if there's some attempt to appeal this. And let's um, – you, you refer to being uh, momentous. Let's, uh, let's talk about the claims that, that Glenn brought, really the, the first claim, um, which was uh, – she brought two claims of discrimination under the Equal Protection Clause. But the first and the one we'll speak about is uh, she alleged Brumby, the supervisor, uh, the head of the office, discriminated against her on the basis of her sex and her failure to conform to gender stereotypes. Um, we've covered this point a little bit briefly in, in, in previous podcasts, but we've, we've talked about how the absence of federal protections explicitly for on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity means that we're left to argue to bring the claims on a sex discrimination uh, basis and a gender stereotype basis. And I was wondering if you could speak to the challenges or the, the upsides and the downsides of having to bring that, the claim based on that approach. Okay. The, the problem we have is, uh, as you said, we don't have – express explicit coverage under a federal statute. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 includes sex discrimination, and for most of its history, uh, the federal courts have taken the position that the definition of sex under that uh, statute is very narrow, and it's based on what Congress back in 1964 could have thought it, it meant when they were passing the statute. But since then, the Supreme Court has given it a much more expansive reading, uh, especially in the case of Price Waterhouse uh, versus Hopkins, where uh, they held that it includes all aspects of gender and sex and gender role. And since then, almost every federal court that has ultimately had to decide this issue on an appellate level has decided that transgender anti-transgender discrimination in a government workplace is probably a violation of Title VII. And so the surprise to me is that this case wasn't brought under Title VII, uh, but it seems to have been conceived as an equal protection case and uh, perhaps also as an attempt to make some new law. Uh, maybe there was a, a feeling that the Eleventh Circuit might be hostile to an interpretation of Title VII that was so expansive. So far, the only circuit court that has a, uh, a really expansive definition of sex discrimination under Title VII to encompass gender identity has been the Sixth Circuit, although there are cases from the First and Ninth Circuit under other federal statutes that forbid forms of sex discrimination that have also uh, adopted this broader reading. So now we have this Eleventh Circuit decision which extends the statutory rationale into an equal protection case and says that because it's sex discrimination, it becomes a heightened scrutiny case. And that, it turns out, is very significant here uh, because, as, as you were asking me before when we were preparing for this, uh, there was an alternative claim here of discrimination based on the medical condition of gender identity disorder, uh, which a uh, gender reassignment process is intended to cure. Gender identity disorder, of course, is not a problem anymore when it's cured by changing one's gender identity or changing one's physical uh, appearance and feeling to accord with one's gender identity. So uh, the federal district judge in this case was faced with alternative claims and said, well, a gender identity disorder equal protection claim would be a rational basis claim and that the government would win that one based on hypothetical speculations. And, and <laughs> I, I would like to be the lawyer who only has to represent the client who can offer hypothetical speculation <laughs> to meet the demanding standard. But yes. we should get to what that hypothetical speculation was. Yeah. I mean, this, here, all, this, all, this came down to what is the recurring theme 
in employment discrimination cases involving transgender plaintiffs, and that is which restroom is the plaintiff going to use? And, and Art, I, I, you know, I wrote about this one yeah. for, for Law Notes, and um, I kept thinking maybe we're going to get through this one without someone offering the bathroom. Uh, the bathroom scenario is the reason. And despite the sort of uh, the very clear indication from uh, Brumby in this case that the real thing going on was his own discomfort or the perception that others would be uncomfortable, just generally with the idea of, as he put it, when uh, when Glenn had showed up previously on Halloween, this was prior to her decision to transition when she had shown up, showed up at a Halloween uh, – on the day of Halloween in her uh, dressed as a woman, he, he talked about how uncomfortable it was, well, the remember, idea to – She showed up at a, an office Halloween party. Well, that, that's fine. She didn't fine. just report for work. No, but he didn't, he didn't, he didn't say yeah. that – Brumby right. didn't say that he was uncomfortable about anyone else's, what they were wearing. Uh, right. Him, he said he couldn't imagine. It was uncomfortable to think about a man's sexual organ being underneath that dress or something yes. to that effect. Yeah. So, but, so he's very clear on this stuff. But they do on appeal offer this – well, we also have, and I guess there was some of it in the lower court, concern over the use of the bathroom and how right. it may affect other women. And the irony of this, of course, was that in the particular office that uh, was at, at issue here where uh, Ms. Glenn was working, there were only single-sex I – mean, there, there were single-stall bathrooms. It was basically one person can be in there at a time. Uh, and so the idea that uh, that people might object – is sort of bizarre because it seems that everyone, regardless of which sex, used the same bathrooms. But uh, the district court actually thought that uh, the possibility that someone might sue for invasion of privacy or something of that nature because the state capitol building also had larger restrooms. And we're, in the actual office where Ms. Glenn was working, there was only uh, the individual uh, person restrooms. But out, you go out into the state capitol and you wander around. They said there's a possibility that someone who's dressed as a woman with male genitals will use one of the public bathrooms and will end up being sued for so, invasion of privacy so or something. And so the, the trial judge said that's enough of a rational basis. Hypothetical speculation. Hypothet hypothetical speculation. That's enough of a rational basis to dismiss – to grant the motion to get rid of the gender identity disorder discrimination claim. But, said the trial judge, and affirmed unanimously by the 11th Circuit panel, uh, as far as the sex discrimination claim is concerned, we have heightened scrutiny. And heightened scrutiny means uh, that the burden is on the defendant to show there's an exceedingly important state policy at issue here, not just some hypothetical speculation about lawsuits. And because uh, Mr. Brumby and his counsel evidently thought that they were not going to have to do more than meet the rational basis test in this case, they never articulated anything that would amount to a uh, an important. No, only that you know their view yeah. is it's unnatural and makes them uncomfortable, yeah. which right. which does allow the court. It's worth noting out noting. I mean, the court rather eloquently, I think, sort of describes what's at issue here. And I, I do want to just read very briefly the judge on. Ro Circuit Judge Rosemary Barkett or Barquette, I don't know how to pronounce Barquette. it. Barquette. Barquette um, explains why discrimination based on one's transgender identity constitutes discrimination based on gender stereotypes. And she writes, a person is defined as transgender precisely because of the perception that his or her behavior transgresses gender stereotypes. Then she goes on, accordingly, discrimination against a transgender individual because of her gender nonconformity is sex discrimination, whether it's described as being on the basis of sex or gender, 
and all persons, whether transgender or not, are protected from discrimination on the basis of gender stereotype. And it's quite simple and quite eloquent uh, how the court puts it. And I think, as you point out, it's a pretty momentous a momentous case for the reasons you just articulated. And we would also point out that it's a unanimous panel. Uh, in addition to Judge Barquette, there was uh, Circuit Judge uh, Phyllis Kravich, who is a senior judge who was appointed by Jimmy Carter. Uh, Rosemary Barquette is a former Florida Supreme Court justice who was appointed by Bill Clinton. But the other judge on the panel, who uh, also voted for this result, was appointed by George W. Bush and is a conservative. And so it, it seemed to me, in looking at this case, that having an anonymous panel that includes a very conservative judge, uh, Judge William H. Pryor, Jr., uh, makes it less likely that the Eleventh Circuit would go on bank on this case, and perhaps even less likely that the Supreme Court would grant cert, especially because this decision is conceptually, at least, in line with the Sixth Circuit case, uh, holding uh, that discrimination against a transgender plaintiff violates Title VII, and that's a case in which the Supreme Court denied cert. So it may be that the court is just as happy not to have to address transgender discrimination at all. Uh, the other interesting thing to note before we take our break uh, is that uh, there was quite an uproar uh, in the LGBT political and legal communities back in 2007 when Barney Frank, uh, who was the leading advocate on the Employment Non-Discrimination Act, decided to take gender identity out of that version of the act in the, the hopes that that would enable its passage in the House of Representatives because it had never passed the House before. And uh, there was a big argument in the community, is it, a, is it acceptable to leave out gender identity? The irony is that transsexuals now have more protection under federal law than gay people do because the courts have construed Title VII and now the Equal Protection Clause to grant heightened scrutiny uh, to uh, gender identity discrimination. I, I'm shaking my head vigorously at you because that's a rather fascinating point yeah. and angle to and this yet, And yet gender identity is part of the Employment Non-Discrimination Act and is said to be one of the reasons why the act can't advance in the Republican House and is probably a long shot to even be passed in the Democratic Senate at present. Interesting. And uh, one last point. This was Glenn was represented uh, by Lambda Legal, yes. uh, continuing to do great work. We're going to take a short break. When we return, we'll be discussing two cases in one segment involving disputes over custody to children, one in the context of a gestational surrogate in New Jersey who sought custody of the child, and the other case involving a dispute between two women in Florida who were raising a daughter together before splitting up. Stay with us. We are back discussing two cases in which the custody of children is at issue and the parents are same-sex couples who either remain together or who have split. Um, Art, we chose these, uh, these two cases. We actually could have chosen more given the content of this month's issue uh, because they reflect the realities of same-sex couples having children, the, the myriad ways such children are conceived, and the complicated legal issues that can arise when the couple splits or when third parties who have assisted in the conception have a change of heart about their role in the child's life. We'll get into the facts of these cases, but um, can you give us a sense of how prevalent these child custody dispute cases are in comparison to earlier years and what that might say about the broader movement and the issues our community faces? 
Well, we definitely have, have seen an increase in the number of cases, especially the ones that get to an appellate level, uh, partly because there is a lack of really settled precedent around the country on how to deal, especially with gestational and uh, gestational surrogacy and even regular surrogacy. And some states have not legislated on it at all. Some states are opposed to surrogacy. Some states are supportive of surrogacy. And uh, some states draw significant distinctions between gestational surrogacy and ordinary surrogacy, and some don't. And this is a real minefield for people who uh, want to have kids. They really should figure out what's the law in their jurisdiction, uh, whether the arrangements that they're making are liable to uh, fall apart if someone changes their mind. Uh, certainly, the agreements that people make, even written agreements, sometimes written agreements drafted by lawyers for them, uh, turn out to have no standing at all in court because of the attitude of the courts in a particular jurisdiction to surrogacy. And, and you, you point out, there. Well, we'll get to the New Jersey case, I mean, there, there probably are well-meaning and seemingly well-informed well informed lawyers who don't even understand that the piece of paper that they're writing for some of these arrangements may not be worth the paper it's printed on. That's possible. Sometimes it's because they think that the existing case law doesn't affect this case because it's distinguishable in some way. Then they run into a judge who says it isn't, and that, in fact, is what happened in the New Jersey case we're going to be talking about. Yeah, and the, the, to get to it, the New Jersey case is um, it's a trial court decision in uh, Robinson v. Hollingsworth, and here a gay couple, uh, two men, uh, conceived twin girls using gestational surrogacy. Uh, their names are Donald and Sean. Uh, they're registered domestic partners in New Jersey. And they entered into a surrogate, surrogacy agreement with Donald's sister, Angelia, to bear children for the two men. Uh, originally, the men intended for her eggs, her ova, to be inseminated with sperm, sperm from Sean so that the children would be gen genetically related to both men um, but during the course of preparing for that, it turned out that her eggs would not be suitable for those purposes. Nonetheless, they went ahead. They used donated eggs. So Angelia uh, thus becomes the gestational surrogate rather than a quote-unquote traditional surrogate in that she's carrying the, um, the child who's not genetically related to her. Um, we started to talk about this already, Art, but um, there are plenty of horror stories out there about family members who are initially excited to help uh, by donating eggs or acting as a surrogate and then change their minds. And second, um, this case is taking place in New Jersey where the famous case of Baby M transpired in which the court held in the case of a traditional surrogate that she was a, the legal mother of the child born there. This was after she changed her right. mind and, and wanted to keep the child. And, and this is why I think it's possible that, uh, that the parties in this case thought that Baby M wouldn't be controlling because in this case, the uh, the surrogate was not genetically related to the child. Although their intentions, their intention were, had been for her well, to be. So this, this, you know, yes. and again, people, none of this is a criticism of all the ways that obviously same-sex couples are trying to conceive children, and there are many different ways. It's just talking about the legal consequences. Yeah, it's just the but in the sentence is yeah. that right. if if things had transpired the way they intended, they would exactly be in the situation of baby M potentially, uh, in that this would be a quote unquote traditional surrogate. Who would have legal rights to this child? So let's let's fast forward. So as you can probably expect, um, Angelia uh, changes her mind. She decides she wants to be the mother of the children, not just as the parties intended to be their aunt. And um, to complicate matters further, she um, she had been in a lesbian relationship previously, but when that broke up, or maybe because of it, or I don't know the facts there, she reverted to her conservative Baptist faith, renounced homosexuality, and became morally opposed to the surrogacy arrangement. 
Um, the- but wanted to keep the kids. <laughs> we have twin girls here as a result of this because, uh, you know, with in vitro fertilization, sometimes you implant multiple embryos. Twins hoping, are much more likely. Yeah, hope, yes. hoping that one will will take because mm-hmm. it's it's an uncertain process still. And uh, in this case, they ended up with twin daughters who were born in two thousand six, uh, October fourth, two thousand six. And she signed a consent to adoption uh, two weeks after the birth of the children. Normally, that's a procedure that goes through pretty smoothly. But then she changed her mind. Uh, and as will happen, birth mothers tend to bond with kids. You know, this is one of the hazards of the whole surrogacy procedure, whether gestational surrogacy or traditional surrogacy. And in New Jersey, under the Baby M decision, as interpreted by Judge Francis Schultz of the Superior Court in Hudson County in this case, it makes no difference whether you have a gestational surrogate or a traditional surrogate. The woman who bears the children is the legal mother of the children. And therefore, it turns into a child custody dispute between the legal father, and genetic testing showed that Sean is the, is the genetic father, that makes him the legal father, and uh, uh, Angelia, who's uh, the sister of Donald. And they were domestic partners. Uh, Donald and Sean were domestic partners at the time this all took place. But in 2008, when same-sex marriage became available in California, for a period of time, they went out to California and got married. So now they're married, which means that under New Jersey law, they're treated as the equivalent of civil union partners because New Jersey has civil unions, but the state takes the position that people who marry elsewhere who are same-sex couples will be considered civil union partners in New Jersey. I think my head just exploded. Yeah, so (laughs) this this is is a complicated case. but, But what the court said is, all right, what we have now is a custody dispute between two legal parents, a father and a mother, and so we decide based on the best interest of the child. So the court went through all the factors under New Jersey law in balancing the best interest and decided it was in the best interest of this child or these children to be with their father uh, for a variety of reasons, but that their mother was entitled to maintain a relationship with them, which includes regular visitation. So you have a situation where Sean has custody, Donald, Sean's husband or civil union partner under New Jersey law, has no legal relationship to these children. Even though in considering the best interests of the child, his caretaking responsibilities – It weighed in. It weighed into it and in fact was was lauded as the the, the couple, the both of them in particular, would be particularly good for these children. And he is the genetic uncle. Mm -hmm. Well, actually he isn't the genetic uncle because – his sister's eggs weren't used. Right, right. right. He was we'd intended a, to be. We'd the have a much uncle. different discussion. But the point is, yes. it's interesting. The court has to dispose of in the you know the or quickly decide the issue of okay, who's the legal mother, who's the legal parent. Yeah. But in the course of uh, father, excuse me. But in the course of then deciding the best interest of the child, the existence of this legal stranger, so to speak, at least vis-a-vis the child, the the non biological father was right, actually a plus. Was actually considered a plus, which is because I, the children have a good relationship with him and he's been parenting them. Since 2006. Which is a little bit, for a complicated factual scenario, it's a little bit heartening that the court... uh, But here's the problem. Here's the problem. The problem is that he has no legal relationship to them. So if something happens to Sean that makes it impossible for him to continue being the custodial parent, they go back to Angelia. And uh, 
in her born-again situation where she's now living with her parents. They Who are vehemently up, opposed right, to homosexuality They as moved well. up to New Jersey. They're not crazy about Donald's uh, husband. Mm. And, uh, I mean, this is a very tangled family situation in terms of law and personal relationships. So it's, it's very uncertain. Now, New Jersey does have second-parent adoption, but for second-parent adoption, y- you, you know, have to get the permission right. of the mother. And Angelia has already uh, right. renounced that. Okay, so let's um, – that, that raises some interesting questions in the court. We've detailed how the court sort of dealt with them. The second case we wanted to talk about in this, this segment, which is titled TMH versus DMT, these are initials for, um, for two women in Florida. This comes out of the Court of Appeal for the 5th District in Florida. It involves a former lesbian couple in which one of the women provided the eggs and the other carried the child, and they became the mothers of a little girl. All the evidence in the record indicated that they both intended to raise the child together, and they were. And that is until things turned sour, the couple split up, and the birth mother, referred to as DMT, cut off communication with the biological mother, referred to as TMH, and moved to an undisclosed location. Which with turned child. out to be Australia. Australia. Which is a pretty far place to go. Right. I mean, I, you know, taking a kid across state lines, period, is pretty yeah. dramatic and traumatic. But to go all the way to Australia, that that's kind of But they little... found her. So they found her. So they re... served her with legal and process. They, and they served her. So here we are. So the relevant law is Florida. And, um, Art, why don't you describe for us some of the, the main legal issues involved here as they pertain to Florida law and how it influences this case? Well, this was another case where the intent was originally that uh, they weren't going to use the uh, genetic mother's uh, eggs. They were going to use the birth mother's eggs, but it turned out that she couldn't produce fertile Mm -hmm. eggs. She could carry a pregnancy, but she couldn't produce fertile eggs. And so we had this interesting sort of situation where one woman was carrying the embryo created by her partner's egg and anonymous donated sperm. And so the only genetic parent of the uh, child who is known is TMH, the genetic mother. And, of course, the birth mother is presumptively the parent of a child. That's, that's normally how it works in family law. The, uh, the woman who bears a child is presumed to be the mother. Uh, and so we have potentially two mothers here. And the uh, argument of the birth mother was you can't have two mothers, not in Florida, of all places, <laughs> uh, which we've been told frequently is not a gay-friendly state. Uh, and the law in Florida is that there's no prohibition against sexual orientation discrimination. Uh, there isn't second-parent adoption. In fact, there's a statute on the books barring adoption by gay people. It's been declared unconstitutional in a court of appeal decision, but that was not appealed to the state Supreme Court, so it just sort of sits there as an unconstitutional statute that the legislature refuses to repeal. So So. it allows us to have yet another example of members of our own community uh, making use of these laws to to very clearly argue against what what was their original intent when they had this child. Well, here what what we're dealing with is that there is a specific statute in Florida concerning donation of genetic material to conceive children, whether it's sperm or eggs. And the, uh, the statute says that when one is a donor, one gives up one's parental rights. They say when you donate eggs mm-hmm. or you donate sperm, uh, you are giving up any claim to uh, being a parent because you're donating it. You're giving it as a gift to somebody else to use, and it's no longer your property. 
and uh, the court gets around this. Well, it's a two-to-one decision. There's a strong dissent, but the court gets around this by saying, but clearly in this case, genetic mother was not intending to donate her eggs. So thereby she is not a quote-unquote donor. donor. Right. She doesn't come under the statute because she wasn't donating them. She wasn't giving them as a gift to her partner. She intended to raise she the child pro- that would right. come, come She from was the providing them so that they could have a child together. And, and what is um, – that allows the court then to get to where we were in the last case. That right. allows the court then – It's a dispute between to, legal parents. Exactly, to decide what's in the best interest of the child. And that's, that's where we leave this case. This case is, is right. now going to be um, remanded basically um, – is there a remand? I just lost yes, the procedural it's a, it's part. A it's, it is a remand to decide the, the best interest court. of the and, child. And the interesting thing is this is what the trial court wanted to be able to do in the beginning. The trial court judge felt that he was bound. This was Brevard County Circuit Judge Charles Crawford. He found he was bound by the statutory language to treat TMH as a donor and therefore TMH would have no parental rights. And he was very reluctant. He expressed it right in his opinion. He said, I hope I'm wrong. If you appeal this, I hope I'm wrong. And the court said, he's wrong <laughs> by a two-to-one vote. And, uh, with, and, and the last thought on that is what's interesting. It, it allows the court to get to a result that perhaps some in the political branch, uh, you know, in, in Florida certainly it's true, they would probably not, not want this result. But yet well, the court has figured out a way to get there. The point is the court remands, but that isn't necessarily the end of the case. This is a new decision. Uh, it just came out on December 23rd. Uh, and we'll see whether DMT is going to try to appeal this to the Florida Supreme Court. Who knows what will happen So there. stay tuned for that. Um, we're going to take another break. When we return, we'll discuss a case out of the Sixth, Sixth Circuit that seems to demonstrate that conservative fears of a slippery slope from Lawrence v. Texas to legalized incest and bestiality might be just a bit exaggerated. Stay with us. We're back talking about the case of Lowe v. Swanson out of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. In this case, a man was convicted of having had consensual sex with his 22-year-old, ste- 22-year-old stepdaughter in violation of Ohio law. The lower court denied his petition for habeas corpus and ruled that the man, named Lowe, did not have a fundamental right to engage in consensual sex with his d- adult stepdaughter, despite the Supreme Court's ruling in Lawrence v. Texas. Um, that formulation may sound a bit odd to our listeners about the role of Lawrence in it, um, why is the decision, Lawrence, front and center to this man's effort to uphold his right to have sex with his stepdaughter? Well, the issue is how broad is the precedent created by Lawrence versus Texas? In Lawrence versus Texas in 2003, the U.S. Supreme Court declared unconstitutional a Texas law against homosexual conduct. And in the course of that decision, the court used very broad, somewhat flowery language about uh, intimate association and the right of privacy, the right of individuals to decide who their sexual partners will be. And the specific holding, of course, in Lawrence was that you can't use the criminal law against a same-sex adult couple who have their consensual activity in private. That's the specific narrow holding. But the broader holding is that the liberty protected by the Due Process Clause includes the right of consenting adults to have sex in private with their partner of choice. Now, the uh, court made clear in its penultimate paragraph, which was the holding of the case, that they weren't passing on issues like uh, 
incest or sex with minors or sex with people who were not capable of consenting because they were drunk or asleep or something like that. But the broad language about liberty protecting sexual autonomy has been seized upon by people who are being prosecuted under other sex crime laws. And they're pointing out that the court said that moral disapproval was not sufficient to sustain this law. And so they're saying, well, incest laws, that's about moral disapproval too. And laws about sex between adults and teenagers, so that's moral disapproval too. Have any of these challenges proven successful on this no, basis? No, not on this basis. They keep trying. So uh, these, these runaway activist liberal homosexual agenda judges somehow managed to put the brakes on pushing Lawrence to its most illogical extreme. Well, so far, the lower federal courts have been very resistant to the idea that Lawrence versus Texas identified a fundamental right such that the state would be put to the burden of coming uh, across with some compelling interests. Uh, there's some disagreement among the lower courts about what the uh, standard of review should be. For example, in cases about sex toys, which I think we've mentioned on a prior podcast, if we haven't, there's certainly have I been think that was cases. some other conversation. Yeah, <laughs> there, there have been several cases, there, uh, most particularly from the 11th Circuit and the 5th Circuit. And the 11th Circuit has said that there's no heightened scrutiny uh, based on Lawrence versus Texas just because something involves sex. Well, And, and, that and the 5th Circuit has taken the opposite position. So, But that point becomes relevant to it the issue. It becomes relevant to this case. case because right. here, you know – the heightened scrutiny standard, if it was to apply, would subject the government to a higher test for right. for its for its Which prohibitions on these on on certain types of Well, conduct. it would probably meet the higher test for incest, I would think. But uh, the issue for this court is it's dealing with the petition for habeas corpus. And under the uh, federal statute that sets the standards for whether you can issue a petition for habeas corpus on behalf of someone who was convicted of a crime in a state court – the issue is whether the conviction was in violation of some clearly established federal constitutional right. And the court said, well, there is no established constitutional right to engage in incest, even with someone to whom you're not genetically related. Right. And this was the heart of the man's argument. He said, I'm not genetically related to this woman. She's an adult. Uh, it should come within the scope of the liberty protected by Lawrence versus Texas. And the court said, well, if this was a heightened scrutiny case, perhaps. But – uh, there is no uniformity among the lower courts as to whether heightened scrutiny should be applied in a case like this. Are we going to get some clarity on that issue? or Eventually, the Supreme Court will end up addressing this again, but I don't think anytime soon. And uh, last point, um, it, it's worth pointing out as we close talking about this case, um, it might be a good moment to reflect on the parties in the case of Lawrence v. Texas, because as you note in this month's right. issue, John Geddes Lawrence Jr., who is the co-petitioner in this landmark, Landmark case recently um, sadly passed away, and I was wondering if you could reflect a little bit on on his life and obviously the meaning of of Lawrence going forward. Well, I think I think of John Lawrence as being a bit of a hero, and I tend to think that people in these big gay rights cases that get up to the appellate courts, uh, they're putting themselves out there. You know, they're they're getting all kinds of media attention, and uh, John Lawrence, from all I've read about him, is not someone who was looking for that. Uh, he was uh, someone who was surprised in his bedroom by police officers storming in uh, based on a phone call claiming that someone had a gun. And uh, he was accused of engaging in uh, sodomy with another man who happened to be there. 
Uh, and uh, the, the ironic thing is it's unlikely that any sexual activity was going on at the time. Uh, in fact, the, the way we found out about Lawrence having died, he, he passed away in November, and no one but immediate family really knew much about it. Uh, but a book is about to be published about the case uh, by a law professor, Dale Carpenter, from the University of Minnesota Law School called Flagrant Conduct. And the book is coming out in March, and an attempt was made uh, by Professor Carpenter to get back in touch with Lawrence, whom he'd interviewed for the book, to arrange for him to be present when they did a big book signing in Houston. And that's when he found out that Lawrence had passed away. And, 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 and so the word spread from there, and we ended up with obituaries in the New York Times, other major newspapers, because Lawrence is, in retrospect, a very important person. And, and you point out that uh, you know one of the courageous aspects of this is that, again, he did not seek this and could have pled no contest or not want to put up a fight when he was faced with – Actually, he did plead no contest. Oh, um, uh, that was the strategy. See, the problem – Oh, to get to the – Yeah, the to, problem is right, right, that right. this case is – it's very, very hard to find a case where someone is arrested for private consensual sex. I mean usually the police which, aren't there. Which to know. actually appeal the statute right. under te- in Texas, you have, you have to. You have to be convicted right. to appeal. Uh, so uh, – he uh, it, he had to be talked into into doing this, not just you know pleading and paying a fine and going away, but appealing. Right. Uh, and uh, I I highly recommend this book. I've read it in galley, and it's really a gripping book. And it it goes in great detail into the events that may or may not have transpired. It it what it shows is the corruption of the Houston police, who because they encountered uh, a gay man who was loudly protesting and a little bit drunk at the time and was not cooperative with them, they arrested him for sodomy, even though no sex was taking place. Gotcha. All right. On that note, we're, um, we're going to take a very short break, and we're going to introduce a new segment. Uh, we worked on this title for a while. It's, it's called Of Note. And during that, we'll, uh, as you guessed, uh, briefly note some other discussion-worthy developments, either because we, uh, one or both of us, finds them important or hilarious or both. We'll be right back. We're back with our Of Note segment. Um, so, Art, what do you have of note to share with our listeners? Well, I would present the second story in the January issue of Law Notes, uh, which is headlined, Obama Administration Launches Diplomatic Strategy for Global LGBT Rights. And I think this caught a lot of people by surprise. But on December 6th, uh, when International Human Rights Day was being observed by the United Nations uh, it's the anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. They have a big ceremony. They did it at Geneva this year. And Secretary of State Hillary Clinton was there. And she was a primary speaker at the event. And she devoted her entire speech to gay rights as human rights. It was really extraordinary. And, and quite moving. Anyone who hasn't heard it, it's on YouTube and on the State Department's website. And to hear a public official not only not stumble over the words lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and LGBT, and so forth. Not only not stumble, but speak so eloquently and so passionately about the rights of LGBT people worldwide was was quite amazing. And this was evidently very highly coordinated with the White House as well. This wasn't just a State Department thing because simultaneously in Washington, the White House issued a memorandum from President Obama directing that all federal agencies that have overseas activities – uh, contribute to this fight for LGBT human rights in various ways. There were specific mandates in there. There were reporting requirements. There was the formation of a body to monitor compliance. 
There was a commitment to uh, helping LGBT people in their asylum claims if they're coming from countries where there's oppression, which is a majority of countries still, unfortunately. And so this was really quite an important development on December 6th. Agreed. And my of note is something probably of less importance. Uh, but it, it is reported in this month's law notes, and it got my attention, and that's the investigation into the financial accounts of a South Haven, Mississippi mayor, Greg Davis, which has led to his announcing that he is gay. Uh, among the receipts that surfaced were purchases at an adult store in Toronto, which describes itself on its website as Canada's premier gay lifestyle store and sex shop. And Mayor Davis uh, was there on a business trip. Uh, and he purchased something for $67 during his visit to this sex just, shop. Just a minute. Just a minute, Brad. He was on a business trip to a sex shop. Well, you know, it, that's the heart of the investigation of this guy. Uh-huh. There's about $170,000 worth of official taxpayer money-supported purchases. And they're all potentially bogus, including his his business trip to Canada where he, he spent $67 of taxpayers' money uh, for something that he doesn't remember at the sex shop. Um, Davis is a conservative Republican who ran for Congress uh, unsuccessfully in 2008. And he said that um, he, he announced that he's gay during an interview and said that he had tried to, quote, maintain separation between my personal and public life, but it's obvious that this can no longer remain the case. And I think the separation could have main- continued. Uh, it's just that you shouldn't use taxpayer money for a sex shop purchase of any type, whether you're gay or straight, although in this case, well, it's but rather... Well, if, if he was buying sex toys protected by the Constitution, <laughs> well, you know, the, the, you know, what's sad about this is it involves his, you know, he has a wife and three kids, and whether they knew about his secret life is a, is a whole other story, although one would imagine that maybe he was not the most friendly to LGBT people, but also I find it ironic, you know, he, he's not even buying his goods in the United States. I mean, we're in the, the depths of a, of, a, of a real recession here, and he has to go to Canada to buy these things. Well, the reason is that they don't allow gay sex shops in Mississippi, I Well, think. that might be, but there's online. And they have a yes. website, by the way, the same store. Oh, Presumably so, other ones do. So, so he could have used his official government credit card to buy the stuff yes, online. Yes, Okay. All right. No, so he would have used PayPal. That <laughs> that's the end of Of Note in our podcast today. Uh, thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, visit us at W www.le-gal.org or at the Justice Action Center of New York Law School. This and future podcasts can also be found online in the iTunes store or at, or at legal.podbean.com. If you'd like to make a donation in support of Lesbian Gay Law Notes or this podcast, please consider donating to the Legal Foundation also online at www.legal.org. Finally, your comments and questions are welcome at info at and we hope you'll join us next time.